First Kings chapter 2 this evening. Last Thursday morning I woke up and one of the first thoughts that came into my head was, you skipped a verse last week, last night. I did. Verse 40. So, we're going to cover it because it actually has something to do with this evening's consideration anyway. That's a bonus. Anyway, looking at 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 40, just for a quick review. And all the people went up after him, and the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy, so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. Uh, This is Solomon it's talking about, when Solomon was anointed. Now, the thought just crossed my mind, maybe I didn't skip the verse. And somebody (laughs) would tell me, you know, you you got the verse. Well, anyway, um, back to verse 40. In verse 38, uh, they went down to the spring of Gihon. And then in verse 40, they go up back to the palace there in Mount Zion. But this is a stark contrast. Uh, the, the, the great vibrations, the roar, the crowd carried through the valley there, the Kidron Valley, around to where Adonijah was having his festivities, dissolving Adonijah's celebration. And again, a serious, stark contrast showing the lack of enthusiasm and joy for Adonijah. And the people and the palace wanted Solomon to be their king, not Adonijah. That's the point. Well, when Adonijah tells this story in next session, not this evening, when he tells his version to uh, Bathsheba, he's going to say, everybody wanted me to be the king. And at the same breath, he will also say, even though God wanted Solomon to be the king. He's just a messed up guy. Anyway, that's verse 40. We're going to get uh, back to that story with Adonijah next session. But this evening, it is the father and the son. Adonijah will come up, but um, not in the first person. And this section, David is giving his last advice to, to his son Solomon. It is wise, it is heartfelt, these final instructions from King David to the son who is now King Solomon. No question uh, that David is uh, investing himself, making sure as best he can that he's not leaving anything uh, left undone for his son. He's trying to facilitate the transition until Solomon gets gets established. At one point he says, Solomon's just a, he's a young man. He doesn't, he's inexperienced and he, he appeals to the leaders to support Solomon. Uh, that's more in Chronicles where we get that. Uh, in Chronicles 23 to 29 is where more information is recorded. And it's not easy to uh, line up the sequence of events in 1 Kings chapter 2 and 1 Chronicles 23 through 29. But we can get enough from it. What is lost are the, the tones, the inflections, the gestures the responding gestures. You know, when you say something and another person's eyes light up or frown. You know, we, we miss uh, this, uh, these facial expressions and gestures that accompany intim- an intimate moment like this. Because those expressions uh, trigger other thoughts and statements. So it would have been a wonderful thing to, to be able to sit there 
and watched old King David talking to young King Solomon. And this is just, is, it flows as we start reading the story. And, and even though we've lost that part, we have, what is preserved is plenty, it's plenty of information for us, enriching information, especially for the men this evening. Uh, Chronicles, when it tells the story of David's last words, it makes no mention of it, Adonijah's coup and that Solomon succeeded, uh, or the people with Solomon succeeded in overthrowing Adonijah. However, that episode of Adonijah trying to take the throne appears, looking at Chronicles with Kings, to have energized David. He seems to have regained sufficient strength and he called for a national gathering. First Chronicles chapter 23. So when David was old and full of days, he made his son Solomon king over Israel. And he gathered together all the leaders of Israel with the priest and the Levites. That he is David. And so again, he, he you know, the expression, he was pretty hot with what Adonijah was doing. Because that's what David needed. He needed to get hot. Remember, he was cold and he had to have Abishag. Okay. Anyway, final days of David. Various scenarios are possible. The most reasonable is that Solomon had his initial anointing to the throne as recorded in 1 Kings. And then a national ceremony as recorded in 1 Chronicles shortly after. And I'll cover more of that at the end. Uh, Solomon was made king essentially twice. He was coronated twice. That quick one by David, uh, when David said, get my mule, I'm not going with you guys, but take him down to Gihon, anoint him there, and then he's going to have the one where he calls the gathering. Now we look at verse 1, and um, there we read, Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, now we'll pause there, uh, in all probability, the way this story reads in both these accounts, Kings and, and Chronicles, uh, David had a personal influence over Solomon, a very positive way. And uh, it, it was good for both of them. He, he apparently didn't have it with many of his sons, but he had it with Solomon. And there are several charges that he lays on Solomon. Now, he's not going to be able to enforce these because he's going to die. He, so, but he's going to say, Solomon, I charge you, do this. And it's going to be up to Solomon to either do it or not. Now, many of the kings did not follow these um, warnings and teachings that their predecessors laid before them. But Solomon is going to do so in the early days of his ministry. And what David has to say, uh, these charges that he gives to Solomon, they are wise, they are noble duties. Paul, of course, charged Timothy, his son in the faith. He charged him to preach the word. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convict, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teachings. And so here is David saying, uh, the, the historian, right? Now, the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon, his son. 
Now, maybe you're a man that you didn't, you're not fortunate enough to have a good father who could charge you, could teach you, that you could look up to. But there are other men. It doesn't have to be your father. Uh, God can raise up a Paul to be over a Timothy. Paul was not Timothy's uh, biological father, but he was his father in the faith. And it, it shows a charge. It's an insistence. It's a direction. It's an advice for duty. It's, it's the father emphatically saying, in this case, the father and son, but as I mentioned, it doesn't have to be Paul with Timothy. It's, it's that emphatic, son, I'm telling you, you've got to do this. Trust me on this. And to back this up, the severity of these charges in the scripture, here's a couple of them, or three more than the one from Timothy. In First Chronicles, Three, uh, not First Chronicles, pardon me, Song of Solomon. Three times in the Song of Solomon, Solomon writes, I charge you. Now, it's in the character speaking, but Solomon is the author. We know the Holy Spirit, uh, of course. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. He says it again three times. Do not stir up love until it is time. Don't force the event. Great lessons in that. To read the word. We are charged by Paul, writing this time to the Thessalonians. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. There he is charging them to read the word in the assembly. Not home in their living rooms. You could do that too. But there is the church. Christians are to assemble. It's not an option. It's a commandment. Also, Paul in 1 Timothy charges believers to follow the word. I charge you, 1 Timothy 5, verse 21, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus and the elect angels. He's borne it on. And so this, this I charge you, Solomon, it's, son, I'm telling you. And that is God saying this to believers. Don't stir up love. I'm charging you with this until it pleases. Don't force it. Don't rush it. And then the preaching of the word and the other charges that come with it. Verse 2. He's not. This is all part of the charge. I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. Now, this I go the way of all the earth is a euphemism for I'm dying. It was found in Joshua's farewell to the nation. I go the way of all the earth. This is, this is the curse. This, this is what happens to us. So David knows he's dying. And there is nothing in the record, we have, and we have, especially in Chronicles, a lot of his words facing death. And we don't, we don't register fear. Here's a man just focused on what God wants for the living. So he says, therefore... Since I'm not going to be here, that is, and you will be king, I won't be here to be king, you will then be king. He says, prove yourself a man. Well, what should David have said? My son, be a conformist. Be, a, be an appeaser. Be a puppet. I learned from one of my Bible teachers early on. He said, theologians are often like sheep. They all go astray. And what he was saying was, 
theologians can pick up an idea and just pass it from one generation to the other because they're not checking it for themselves. And you've got to break that. I mean, if it's true, you stay with it. But if you say, wait a minute, let me think this through. And we have an example of this last Sunday where I disagree with most of the commentators that I read and that who, men who I highly admire and adore, but on this topic, I disagree with them because of my teacher years ago saying to me, theologians go astray all like sheep. Make sure you think it through. Find out what the answer is yourself. That's what the Bereans were doing. We admire this. Well, what David says, prove yourself a man. He's saying, don't just be somebody's puppet. That's a little bit severe to the example I was giving. The theologians, I'm not suggesting they were puppets, but there's a practice of that going on. Anyway, being wise and being rich and being king is not enough. It's not enough to properly... Rule the kingdom. Solomon needed to be strong enough to carry the blessing. Now, there's a lesson in that for all of us. It's not enough to have a gift. You have to be strong enough to carry the gift. You have to be wise enough to know when to and when not to implement. I mean, if you're a, if you're a good Bible teacher, you don't just get on a bus and start preaching to people. You know, just see, you know, they just see, you get the casting pearl before the swine. This is not good. You have to, you know, you still retain your wits about you. A lot of, you can be an A student with no sense. We have a whole administration in the White House like that. A bunch of folks that can get A's on tests but really have no sense. They can't govern because their hearts are wrong. And this has often been the case throughout human history. Well, Zedekiah, the last king of the Jews, the last of Judah's kings, he will not prove himself a man. And because of that, directly because he could not stand up to those around him as king, Jeremiah and the kingdom suffered greatly to the point where Nebuchadnezzar came and took them all away to Babylon and killed the others and raised the temple and the city, destroyed everything. So this is primarily for men. It is what David is saying to Solomon is between he and his son. It is man to man. It is not man to boy. It is man to man. It is not for Bathsheba. It is not for Abishag. It is to his son. This is not to say that women cannot benefit in their roles from this lesson, these lessons. But men are singled out. That is the emphasis on this particular part, where he says, prove yourself a man. And I'm going to spend some time on this, because we need this. The church needs this, not necessarily this church. Christianity needs this. And scripture agrees. It is not for women to try to be one of the boys. I don't know about you, it always bothers me. Just as when a boy is trying to be one of the girls. It's not right. And in some cases, it's mild and just a nuisance, but it can lead to other things. This culture is so satanically charged, they, they hate what I'm saying. They disagree with this. God, in his subtle yet thorough way, brings it up in Deuteronomy. He says, a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to Yahweh your God. You're not supposed to cross over. There's no transgender with God. That is something that 
comes from the sulfur of hell. And unfortunately, people whom we would love to preach to don't want to hear it. But God's word is true. And uh, just one biblical basis for men to recognize, uh, men, people, to recognize uh, the gender distinction is as in Deuteronomy 22. Now, for the politically liberal and progressive agenda to succeed, men must be either removed or feminized. In some way, they have to be marginalized. In some way, they cannot prove themselves to be men if their agenda is going to succeed. This was the case in ancient Egypt. The Pharaoh said, we've got a problem here. We feel threatened. We have got to get rid of the men. But we can't. There's too many of them. So let's try to nip this problem in the bud. Exodus chapter 1, verse 16. When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and you see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. See, Satan knows that there is a great distinction between a man and a woman. As I said Sunday, and as I said many times, the Bible says that men and women are equal in value to God and should be equal in value to us, but they are distinct in their roles. Satan, as I said, knows this. And for Satan to succeed, he's got to take out the men. That's why he went through Eve to get to Adam. Adam would have clocked him upside his head if he'd gone there first. Well, maybe not, but I would like to think that. Uh, he, he would have more than likely said no, but Satan, of course, more cunning than any creature in the garden, of course, went to Eve first. This was the same story with King, uh, with Balaam telling Balak, look, you know, send the women in, not the troops if you're going to win. For homosexuality, for the homosexual agenda of intimidation to succeed, Men must be corrupted in their thinking. And that's what we're watching. We're watching this happen. Men have been corrupted in their thinking to suppose, okay, well, you know, you see it years ago. Well, hey, I don't judge. Well, you should. There's just some things you should judge. Hey, there's a cannibal family moving in. I'm judging them. <laughs> right away. For <laughs> What happened to Baxter? He didn't judge him. <laughs> so they cooked them. I guess. I don't even know if they do. They cook them? I mean, they say like, you know, you've you got to heat the meat up. I, mean, I don't know. Anyway, uh, for Islam to carry out its imperialistic conquest, and it is imperialism, a form of, the men must be converted. Islam will not succeed if the men don't give in. Then it's going to be a fight. So it does matter. Well, it's very serious stuff. The one element that God must have to successfully stop evil movements are men. If the men don't rise up, it ain't stopping. Now, granted, God can get the women to stir the men to rise up against evil. This does not diminish the role of the woman. It heightens it. What if Eve said, why are you talking to me? You talking to me? Why are you talking to me? What if Eve was from Brooklyn, right? <laughs> it had been a different story. Satan would have walked away saying, where's my wallet? <laughs> well, 
A man can be every bit of man and not skilled in martial arts. He doesn't have to be able to shoot a weapon well to be a man. A woman can be every bit of a woman, even if she is childless. There's no way you got to have a child before you could really be a woman. That's Satan talking. This is why, again, ancient Egypt tried to exterminate all of the male babies that were born to the Jewish women. David knew that being a male and being a man were two different things. Just because you're a male doesn't mean you're going to be a man. Otherwise, he'd never have to say to Solomon, I charge you to be a man. He's already a male. The implication is is explicit. Uh, That's not a contradiction. That's a paradox. 1 Chronicles chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, pardon me, chapter 6. Paul, in laying out what unrighteousness is, he goes on to say, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, nor the effeminate, nor sodomites? Now, he lists other sins, too. But the translators usually translate that word that means effeminate, they usually translate it homosexuals, when it is really men behaving like women. It matters with God. A man does not need others to agree with him to believe what is right and to act on it. Could you imagine if your pastor went on? I want to say this today, but let me take a poll. Who agrees with me? He's, uh, you know, Paul never asked permission to do anything. And Paul said, you know what? I'm going to Corinth. He'd gone to Corinth. There was not, hey, what do you think, Apollos? Now, he was not a tyrant. He said he wanted Apollos to visit, and, and he actually mocks him a little bit. He says... Apollos will visit you when he has a convenient time. Because he felt Apollos should be in the fight more. Anyway, uh, as I mentioned, a man does not need others to agree with him to know what is right when, it, when he can see it. I mean, at times we, we're not sure. That's another story. Being a man does not mean, as I mentioned, that, we, uh, that that man should be a great fist fighter or a tough guy. Or be able to do all the manly things that maybe we want him to do. Not necessarily. Daniel the prophet was no mixed martial arts practitioner. He probably could, you know, take him out pretty good by the time he got to the lion's den. He wasn't, you know, a young man anymore. Yet he could stand in the midst of the lions by faith and prevail. Quite manly, if you ask me. Daniel, are you there? Has your God protected you? I'm here, king. He could still, you know, he was, he didn't lose it, huddled up in a corner shivering. He could look into the face of his prosecutors and say, you don't tell me how to worship or who to worship. That's pretty manly if you ask me. That is being a man. Mordecai, Mordecai refused to bow down to such a fool as Haman. I'm not doing it. I don't care what happens. I'm not doing it. And if it gets us in trouble, God will get us out. And that's, Mordecai didn't count on the, uh, the backlash he didn't count on the people being, geno- you know, wiped out, genocide. But that's what the, the move that Haman played. And Mordecai went to God, and, and they won. Jeremiah and Paul's persecutions and beatings were very manly. I mean, Jeremiah suffered so much because of that male king 
Zedekiah, who could not stand up to the people that hated Jeremiah because Jeremiah preached the truth. And again, Paul. Uh, Paul was not uh, this brawny guy. He was just a regular guy who would preach the gospel no matter what. I will add that women who are in competition with their husbands are under the influence of Satan. It's one thing to do the best you can do. It's another thing when your, your motivation is to try to outdo the other one. You're not rowing together at that point. And that goes for the man, too. If you're competing with your wife, you don't know who you are. Your compass is broken, and you, you, you can't find the right direction. Uh, this, is, uh, this kind of uh, attitude has caused in-laws to be very problematic when they have this attitude. You know, this, your grandparents over here are better than those grandparents. I mean, it's just stuff that Satan gets in there and does. Uh, this is, none of what I'm saying is anti-woman. It is anti-corruption of men. That's what I am preaching right now. Men don't ask women how to be men. You go to the Bible, you go to another man. Uh, you know, I mean, not saying a woman cannot give good input. I'm not saying that. But if I want to learn how to be a man, I'm not going to say, maybe when I'm a little boy, yeah, but as I get older, I'm going to not say, Mom, what do I need to do to be a, a man? Again, not that well, my mother would say things. For instance, she would say when I was a boy, a man that beats a woman is a coward. Well, to this day, I've not forgotten that because it's right. It is true. It is accurate. And uh, so I'm not at all saying that moms and sisters and daughters and women in general cannot contribute. But how we go about it, it does matter. Um, it matters a lot. And here is David being the father and saying, son, I'm charging you to prove yourself a man. Verse 3, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. David is now, in verses 3 and 4, echoing Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4.29, for example. There are several verses in, 29, in Deuteronomy that he is echoing, as well as the Davidic covenant between God and David given by Nathan in 2 Samuel 7. He is saying a king can only prosper by faithful respect and pursuit of God's word. Well, that would be true of, of us all especially of the leaders, you have less space. Well, there's more consequences in the lives of others if you fail in the position of leadership. And a leader can be anywhere from an individual to a head of a home. Joshua 1.8, This book of the law, God said to Joshua, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then... You will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Well, there's a bad success. Bill Gates is a bad success. Uh, you know, there's no software that's going to get him out of hell. And, and if he doesn't figure it out before then, it's going to be too late. He has an example. 
He says here in verse 3, David does to Solomon, and keep the charge of the Lord your God. That preposition, the charge, is significant. It connects the charge to be strong with this charge to be obedient. They go together. Obedience and strength are united. Don't we pray, Lord, give us more power, more strength? Give us strength to love, to forgive, to obey. This is the path of safety, David is saying. This is the path of the devout and the loyal to God as best we can do. And a strong church brings out the best in believers. It is designed that way. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. He put all things under his feet. That is, the Father put all things under the feet of Christ, the authority of Christ. And gave him, that is Christ, to be the head over all things to the church. This is his church. And, you know, what we're seeing more and more are churches turning to technology now. Where there are, it's not about evangelism, it is about algorithms. If we can find the right algorithms and post them on our website, then we will be able to pick those people. So, we, you know, the hot buttons, you know, drugs and divorce and things like that. And we just attract people that way. This is ramping up in high gear. A couple of weeks from now, I hope to hit it. I'll quote my source and excerpts from the article that was on this very thing. And in the article where I got it, it was no shame. There was no mention of Christ. It's just that we, we're going to reach people through algorithms. The Lord, you know, the algorithm is my shepherd. I shall not preach. Uh, anyway, Ephesians 3.10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the Heavenly places. <clears throat> He's talking about the local church. There are those that would like to reduce this. No, this is a universal church. It's invisible. It's just everywhere. Well, there's some truth to that, but that's not the main point. Else he wouldn't have anybody to write the letter to. The church was the recipient to the Ephesians, uh, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Smyrna, in Pergamos, in Thyatira. I mean, it was to the assembly. I, I, I don't. I don't take it lightly when someone, a Christian, says, I believe in Jesus Christ, but I, I don't go to church. Well, i got a problem with you, because the Bible has a problem with you. And if you think I'm going to stand here and agree with you, you're wrong. And, uh, in fact, you use a gentle and loving rebuke. That usually doesn't turn them. They've made up their mind. Anyway, Ephesians 3, verse 21, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It would be easier if there was no church to the flesh. It would be so much easier. You wouldn't have to worry about, let's get servants in the children's ministry. Can we get some more ushers, some young men step up? Can we get this? Can we do that? wouldn't have any of those problems. Right now, I'd be sitting home, eating a cheeseburger, searching for something wholesome to watch. And that's how I spend my whole night, because I never find anything. It's like, okay, I'll be back tomorrow and just keep clicking through. Well, I saw that documentary on lizards. I didn't care for it. Um, anyway... Back to, and keep the charge of the Lord your God. Man, David is shining brightly as a dad in this one. Why, where was he doing this years ago? Well, he had his, uh, he had his battles. David's own failures 
and the overcoming of those failures added great weight to what he's saying to his son. His son is a man now. He knows about David's failures, disasters. He also knows about his victories. And he has decided, Solomon, at this point in his life, that his father knows best. He's not pushing against him. He's receiving it. And the proof is that everything David tells him in this chapter, he does it. He gets it done. You've got to deal with Joab. You have to deal with Shemaiah. You've got to deal. And he goes and takes care of business. That will be when he purges the next session, if we are still here. And David adds this. He says, keep the charge of the Lord your God as it is written in the law of Moses. That would At this time, it was Joshua back to Genesis, and that was pretty much it, officially, <clears throat> as Scripture. And uh, David has said, be a man of the word. Keep the law of the Lord. I'm charging with that, with you, uh, charging you with this according to the Scripture. This title, incidentally, the Law of Moses, is most consistently used of the first five books of the Bible than any other. And here is David, and where is David? David is on death's doorstep. We were told David is. I go the way of all flesh. David says, I'm, "I don't have much time. I, can, I know I'm dying." And yet, David is still quoting scripture. He is still ministering. He still matters. He still counts in this life. He is still an influence. Christ did the same from the cross. Stephen did the same there in Jerusalem where they stoned Stephen. What was Stephen's last word? He's quoting Jesus Christ. Don't lay this charge against them. Powerful witnesses we have. You want to learn how to be a human being? Read the Bible. Because God holds up the good and the bad. And he says, which one do you want to be? Go after that. Verse 4. And Yahweh, and that Yahweh may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way and walk before me in truth, with all their heart, with all their soul, he said, you shall not lack, lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David is saying, this is what God has told me, that my sons will remain kings if they walk according to the scripture, if they serve the Lord in truth. Can't take that out. <clears throat> That's why alarms go off when someone wants to come up with a heresy. <clears throat> when we find a Christian or a church uh, defending something that's not true. We get quite indignant about that. That's a lie. Why do you have that guy speaking there? Do you know what he believes? Because he doesn't believe the Bible. Or he's one of those that wants to mingle the Bible. He'll come up and he'll say, I believe every word in the Bible. And then proceed to contradict everything in the Bible. But he's won his audience. Oh, okay, he's one of us. Because the people sometimes are not listening. Because all we like sheep go astray. To David, God was personal, that Yahweh may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me. I can say that. When John the Apostle says, and we believe it's John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, I can say that. I can say that with equal enthusiasm, with equal authority. I can say, John, he loves me just as much as he loves you. And John, I am a lot more messed up than you. To John, 
the love of Christ was personal before the cross. To David, God is personal. God could be known and God could be your friend. And I know as a young Christian, what was so outstanding to me working around unbelievers is that God was real. He was real to me. He still is real to me. It's not a religious thing. It's personal. You can take everything away. God is going to still be there. And so David is saying, son, for God to fulfill his promise, you will need to be more than a male. You will have to be strong and you will have to be a man according to the scripture, according to truth. And the Holy Spirit says, this has not stopped being so. It is still in effect. Integrity before God. Um, integrity before God, it um, allows a man to recover if he fails. If you fail, you, uh, you know, I'm wrong. I got to build this back up. I got to get to work. To be able to be a man of God or a child of God in the eyes of God and even people, by that blameless according to the rule. And that's what Peter said. Look, they're going to say nasty things about him about you as a Christian, just make sure they're not true. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. This is the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're telling Christ this about Jesus. And he's going, yeah, that's, that's me. But Acts, in Acts 24, uh, there's Paul giving his witness. And he says, I myself always strive to have a good conscience without offense toward God and men. It's, it's not just, you know, God, God knows who I am. He knows my heart. And that's it. It doesn't matter what kind of damage I'm doing to human beings. Uh, we want the balance. We want to be blameless before not only God, but also before men. Otherwise, we be, the integrity is sacrificed and we can become delusional supposing that God is pleased when we're not living according to his word. If your sons take heed to their way, that if is not chance, like they might, it is a requirement, it is a conditional clause. First Chronicles 28, David's last words, this belongs to. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. Boy, the authority that David is just pouring, you know he's under the anointing, he, and in this is also the building of the temple at this time. He's just laying out how he wants the worship set up, how the temple is going to be. And he is all over. He, this is a man going out of his life just like Elijah, just not with the chariot on fire, but just as a, a sensationally, spiritually sensational, uh, sensationally leaving this world. And so he says, as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart. And a willing mind. Have a teachable spirit. For Yahweh searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. This does not put us in a bubble. This does not make it so that if I'm having hard times and I seek God, he's just going to come and take my problems away. That is not what it means. It means... That when the dust of this life settles because you adhered to the Lord, you abided in Christ, you will be with Christ forever. And there'll be no more suffering for you. It is, God, is, God always has his eyes on eternity. 
because that's where he dwells. He says, if your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth. Uh, Truth is to be lived, and it must be esteemed. Why the world doesn't really, you know, the news media, how much time do they spend suppressing the truth? You know what they call it? They even have a fancy, well, it's not fancy, can be. They have a word for their suppression of the truth. It's called editing. Don't tell that story. That's true. Tell this story instead. That has nothing to do with anything. And they do this all the time, if not flat out lying, as as they do do. And so uh, they do not respect the truth. Truth is not esteemed. David is saying truth must be esteemed and it must be guarded in the mind. You have to have it in your head. This is, this is what's going to dictate the course of your life. Truth. It's not a magic wand. Just because you love the truth and pursue the truth and are a child of the truth does not guarantee that you will be shielded from other truths that aren't so pleasant. With all In this life. With all their heart and all their soul. David is he not, as we would say, he's not taking any prisoners when it comes to... Uh, telling the truth to his son what it's going to take to be a king. And he's not even gotten to the people yet. He's just laying the foundation for what he's going to say about the men that Solomon is going to have to deal with with all their heart and all their soul. Words from a man of the word of God. Man, a man of his Bible. Devotion demands effort. And it comes with agony. And anyone who is not suffering to some degree to expand their knowledge of the word, is not in the word. I mean, it just takes work, hard work. And uh, like loyalty, devotion has to be tested to be proven that it is there. And that usually comes when the moods uh, start fighting against us. I don't feel like it. Again, using myself. What would would happen to a church if you had a pastor that did not feel like staying up on doctrine? It just didn't, you know, just got, you know, I'm just going to go out in the pulpit and I'll read a verse and I'll just go off in this thing about what I think. Uh, Hopefully you have men in the pulpit who pour over God's word, who are just so, you know, hours into what is being said. Well, continuing here in verse four, he said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. He being God who said it. And so David recites God's promise based on the condition The outcome of uh, faith is devotion, Solomon. That's what he's saying. And that faith comes from the word of God. Verse 5, Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime, and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. I just David is like, listen, I have been articulate with my praise of God. And now, Solomon, I'm going to articulate to you the truths of God and what's happening in the kingdom. Now, again, we won't get to Solomon dealing with Joab in this session, but here is the groundwork for it. David took Joab's, when it says, moreover, you know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me in verse 5. David took it personally because they were done behind his back, both murders, and they were done against his will. Joab killed Abner and Amasa to suit himself. 
Both were cold-blooded murders by Joab. And so what David says, and he shed blood of war in peacetime, he's saying they were unjustifiable killings. They were murders. And the Bible makes a clear distinction throughout between killing and murdering. They are two different things. Capital punishment is justified in the New Testament, and murder is not. Peter was warned. When the Lord said, you live by the sword, you die by the sword, he's saying, Peter, you're trying to kill this guy, and if you succeed, they're going to kill you. And they're going to be justified in doing it, because this is an act, this is a violent act. And uh, that's what was all belongs to, the, that word from Christ to Peter. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Uh, that is a, a broad, uh, there are broader applications, but that is the crux of it. Anyway, he continues here in verse 5, And put the blood of war on his belt, Joab did this, and around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Well, this is literal. It's not poetic. Their blood was splattered on Joab because Joab killed them with a knife. That means, up. we well, didn't throw it. He killed them up close. And David is <clears throat> pointing out the violent tendencies, uh, which is, is a part of Joab's life, that he killed these men up close. Both stabbed in the stomach. But in Amasa's case, there are... Uh, more gruesome details given in the Bible. Two words that stand out uh, in his death. His entrails and his wallowing. He wallowed in, in his blood and his death. And, and David is, is saying, pointing this out. He says, listen, the blood of those men splattered on Joab because he's such a savage. Solomon's ascension to the throne is accompanied by a fresh work, an opportunity to purge the kingdom that David really doesn't have. David is a little spooked um, when he was ruling and, <clears throat> with Amasa, especially. God had told him that there was going to be blood, you know, violence, war, because of his sin with Bathsheba, and this would characterize the rest of David's reign. <clears throat> well, he kind of walked lightly, I believe, because if he had executed Joab, there were so many people loyal to Joab, I think David feared another insurrection. When David, uh, I know I'm covering a lot of information here. Let me slow it down and back it up a little bit. When David sent Amasa to deal with an uprising, Amasa dilly-dallied. Then David had to send Joab. Well, Joab is, was the commander of the army. Amasa is the new commander so Joab figures, you know what? You cause the king grief and, and the kingdom, and Joab kills him uh, up close. And then he becomes the commander. Well, David doesn't want to just kill him. He's he dealt with Absalom. He's dealing with this insurrection. If he kills Joab, too, as punishment, he's got another problem on his hands. And so that might explain some of the psychology. And I don't mean uh, the pop psychology. I'm talking about the way... David was thinking. That would explain why he was reluctant. When Solomon comes to power, David says, hey, those allegiances, that political fallout that I was faced with all my life, you won't have this. Things have changed. You're going to have opportunities that I don't have. And I, this is what you need to do. And that's part of what David is, is taking care of here. God never rebukes David for these things. He never rebukes Solomon for these things because these men were right in what they were doing. Some commentators, they don't like it. 
sometimes I think these guys are living a bubble somewhere. It's like, man, put yourself. Before you start bashing on David, I got your phone number and your address. I'm coming for you. <laughs> That's just my flesh. It's okay. Uh, no, it's not. Some of these guys, I mean, they're just not realistic. You, put, you say, put yourself in, the, in David's spot, in Solomon's place. You've got these guys like Shemaiah walking around still looking to rebel. You, you, you can't leave it that way. Anyway, verse 6. Therefore, do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. I'm not telling you how to kill him, but you got to kill him. And you're wise enough to figure out a way to do it the right way so that you won't get blamed by God. Because Joab's going to hand it to you. And, and he's going to, so is Shemaiah, because David knew these guys. He knew how they thought. He knew what they did. He could control <clears throat> Joab long-term better than Solomon could. And that's why he's saying, you got to kill that guy. And uh, that's what's going on here. Uh, knowing, David knows that Solomon will figure it out, and he knows that he will be the man. He will be strong enough to carry it out. And Solomon, he does it. And so David here mentions Solomon being wise. He says, therefore, do according to your wisdom. Now, this is before 1 Kings 3, the events in 1 Kings chapter 3, where God comes to Solomon in a dream and says, what would you like? Riches? Long life? Kind of a moment. And Solomon says, wisdom. Where did he get that? Who put that seed in Solomon's head? I think his dad did. I think he did it on this day. See, that's what I meant. When David's talking to him, there's an intensity going on between the two men. There's the look in David's eyes. There's the features. There's the part where David rolls, looks his eyes up, and he's, he's processing information. He's remembering things from times past. And Solomon is, is processing that and saying, this, this is important. And he's got him. And then when he says, therefore, do according to your wisdom, Solomon says, this is important to be wise to be strong. Why? Well, this is very human. It's very real. And it's very much available to us. Otherwise, why print it and preserve it? I think this was the catalyst for Solomon's request for wisdom from God when asked, what would you like? I need wisdom. Uh, maybe David spooked him. You know, Maybe when David said, do according to your wisdom, he said, uh... You do know I'm only like 24, and I don't know anything except uh, my urges. <laughs> so, uh, man, I wouldn't want to be 24. If you're here and you're 24, God bless you. You know, get to where I am, okay? But uh, hurry up and get out of there. Uh, looking back, I think, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, well, I don't really miss my hair. You don't have to comb it or anything like that. Anyway, let's go back to this. And do not let the, his, speaking of hair, and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. Yeah, justice delayed is not justice denied. It is remarkable that one of the final acts of Moses in his life and in his ministry was justice mingled with revenge from God. God told him this. Where? Where did he tell him? I'm not telling you. No. Numbers chapter 31, verse 2. God saying to Moses, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. I need you to deal with these people, and then I'm going to take you to heaven. 
Man, that's intense. Just think about it. You know, on the drive home, think about God saying, saying. And so here we see David. And David, being such a man of the word, may have just had that in mind. I would have searched the scriptures and said, okay, I find precedence in scripture. I have a match here. There are times when justice and revenge do merge. Verse 7, But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. Barzillai was a friend when David needed friends. This is a lesson for everybody here. You can be a fickle friend, a fair-weathered friend. When everything is fine, you're friends. But when the pressure is really on, and you got skid in the game too, are you still going to be a friend? Uh, this is, uh, you know, Jesus. When Jesus said, uh, when they said to the Lord, this is a hard saying. We don't like that sermon. You said in your sermon. And they said, we're going to leave. And Jesus then, of course, asked the disciples, you going to? Where do you stand in this matter? Uh, they, where else are we going to go? We're your friends. We're with you. We are loyal. They, they didn't articulate it with their mouths that way. They did it with their lives. Peter just simply said in his, in his wonderful fashion, there's nowhere else to go. You got it all. We ain't find, we're not going to find this anywhere else. Barzillai was that kind of guy. And when things were looking really bad for David, he risked his life and he brought friendship and food. And that is a friend. And David wanted to re reward Barzillai's friends. David wanted to reward Barzillai. He said, come, you can sit at my table. I'm too old for that. I don't need the palace life. I just want to go back home, finish out my days here where I live. However, take my son. Um, Kimham, and David does that. Well, here, David is saying to Solomon, expand it. Uh, remember his other sons, his other family members. Always have a place for them at your table. Uh, this is very beautiful. This is what Joab could have had, what Shemaiah could have had, but they opted out of this. Uh, David is not, he's no monster. He knows what he's doing, and it is right. Uh, he's telling Barzillai, uh, he's telling Solomon, Barzillai refreshed me with food and friendship. I want you to refresh his descendants with the same thing. Verse 8, and see, you have with you Shemaiah, the son of Gira, a Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Mahanaim. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by Yahweh, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Verse 9, Now therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him and bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. No, he's not, in case you're not clear on this, kill him. He's right out with this. He's, this is such, here's the second time. Solomon has to say, he's calling me wise again. And... Um, I, I don't know if I can do this. He's telling me to rule the nation. Solomon, at this point, we're going to read later that Solomon loved the Lord. It's just the wealth. And so before we start throwing stones at Solomon, what, how would you live if you were a multi-trillionaire? How would you live? Do you think you would be better than Solomon? Uh, you wouldn't get my vote. If, <laughs> Rick, we're going to kill you if you get this wrong. Well, I'm not voting. 
<laughs> the flesh is too mean. Uh, the mercy of God, though, is bigger than it all. And we'll cover that. What does God do with Solomon after we get to chapter 11 in two years from now? Uh, anyhow, <laughs> Solomon, uh, he is going to extend grace to Shemai. He's going to give him one more chance. Well, because David had his spies out. David knew Shemaiah still was doing his little stuff out there. And this is why Solomon is going to say when David dies, Shemaiah, you need to live in Jerusalem. And you need to stay in Jerusalem. Because I can't have you out there with the Benjamites and the boys trying to stir up trouble. That's the, and Shemaiah says, you, you got me. And he, he doesn't fuss. He comes to Jerusalem. And Solomon says, if you leave the city, I'm going to kill you. And two years later, he leaves the city. And Solomon said, bingo. That's what dad was talking about. He said, do it the right way. So you know, there's, there's more to these stories, uh, but they're not hard to find. It's just life. You, you can look at that and you can understand. Uh, since the days of kings, there has been much intrigue. They have their spy network. They know what's going on. And that's what we're having. Uh, anyway, uh, David says, that guy, he cursed me. <clears throat> the Lord justified me killing him for that. I did not because God was merciful with me. I was merciful with him. Plus, he greeted <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Plus, he greeted me when I returned with a thousand men, and it would have just been wrong. But he still, we know who he is. He, he flies beneath, he's the kind of guy that flies beneath the radar. You know those kind of people, they're always getting away with wrong. It's like, when, are the, when is justice going to fall? And this guy gets another promotion. He's a little rat. He can't even, you know. It's not the flat. Okay, maybe a little bit. But if you've been in the, worked in the world, you've seen this. I, I work for a company, American Bridge, U.S. Steel. Or was it? It was them. Their policy was to take the weakest worker and make him the boss. They took, the, they took a slave and made him a slave driver. And because that guy was such a, a, a lazy guy, he wasn't going back into the gang. He just made sure he did his job the right way so he could stay in his position. It's like, what? The lazy guy gets the promotion? Oh, man, how do these guys pull it off? Well, anyway, uh, I don't even know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a hard hat right now and clunking around some job site. Verse 10. <laughs> so David rested with his fathers. And was buried in the city of David. Again, a euphemism. He's not really like, okay, I'm just going to go lie down with my dad. He's, 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 he's dead. Uh, this is it for David. He's about 71, 72. You know, we've got some half years in there to calculate. But uh, uh, it says, and he was buried in the city of David. The royal tombs outside Jerusalem. Manasseh will be the first Judah king to opt out. Uh, Manasseh was a wicked guy who gets saved, incidentally, after 52 years. Seriously. Anyway, David's sepulcher is um, said to be, well, it was still around in the days of the apostles in Acts chapter 2. We'll read about that in one of the sermons given, that his tomb is still with us. Some believe they found it. Uh, not a big issue with me. Verse 11, unless they could really prove it, then it would really be nice. Verse 11, uh, the period that David reigned, over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron. And in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. Verse 12. And then Solomon on the throne of his father. 
sat on the throne of his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. So Solomon inherits the throne. We're about 970 years before the birth of Christ. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 22. So they ate and drank before Yahweh with great gladness on that day. And they made Solomon, the son of David, king a second time and anointed him before Yahweh to be leader and Zadok the priest. And that is the second coronation of, of Solomon. There was the first one uh, impromptu when Adonijah was having his festivities and they interrupted that, dissolved it, and then David planned this huge affair and that's what we're reading about that, that I just read from First Chronicles. Subtle differences, I, I'm not going to read them, just suffice that verse is strong enough. So the new king comes to the throne, and his to-do list is prepared for him by his father. Deal with Joab, deal with Shemaiah, renew, uh, reward the sons of Barzillai, and build the temple. Those, that's the directive that Solomon gets. The temple part is mainly in Chronicles. As we, we, we close with this, because that first major crisis is on the horizon. Adonai, his brother, will make his move. Second Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1. Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and Yahweh his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. And that is an approval of what Solomon was doing in these early days under the charge of his father, David. What a magnificent story. I don't know about you, but I love this story. So easy to study. Well, there's a lot of hard work. I mean, a lot. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you. The lessons uh, to, to, to ponder after hearing these things from your word. Even if you just took my comments away and studied the story as it is, it is rich with information that is helpful to man and woman alike. But this evening, particularly the, the men, the young men, may you get us all home safely. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.